Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, Go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. Sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 16, Margaret of France, the not-so-evil stepmother. Margaret was born in 1279 to King Philip III of France, also known as Philip the Bold, and his wife Maria of Brabant. She was Philip's youngest child, the final of seven children who made it out of infancy, though three of them, including Philip's future successor, who was also called Philip, were children of his first wife, Isabella of Aragon. Philip, you may remember, had come to the throne in 1270 after the death of his father Louis IX during the Eighth Crusade. Though he was called The Bold, This was more a description of his prowess with the sword rather than his character in politics or in life, where really he was a rather cautious man. His life was rather dominated by his mother, Margaret of Provence, who you may remember as being Eleanor of Provence's elder sister, and if you think that Eleanor was a headstrong and ambitious woman, she has nothing on Margaret. When she was six, her father died of dysentery while campaigning in Spain, because, you know, it's the Middle Ages and everyone dies of dysentery when they go to war and so the throne was passed to her brother Philip IV, who is also known as Philip the Fair, one of the most influential kings in French history. Philip's goal on the throne was to modernise the royal administration and also to kick the English out of France, and with that in mind, in 1296, he invaded Gascony. Gascony was the southern part of England's only major possession in France, and so defending it was the cornerstone of English foreign policy. It was one of the main reasons for the choice of Eleanor of Castile as queen, and holding on to it was vital for English prestige. England and France have been at peace for decades ever since the decisive defeat inflicted on King Henry III at the Battle of Talibor. Since then, things have been relatively cordial, and Edward I had been happy to pay homage for his lands in France to the French king, as was expected for him. In England, he was a king, but in the French feudal system he was regarded as a duke. And that was fine under Philip I's predecessors, but Philip wanted a centralised state under his personal control, and so a foreign king, being also a French duke, was not acceptable. Now, Edward had wanted to go back on crusade, and so had been cultivating a friendship with France for many years. But, in 1291, complete disaster struck when Acre, the last Christian stronghold in the Holy Land, fell to the Mamluks. The crusader states were dead. This meant that when Philip decided to engineer a diplomatic incident, Edward was not in a mood to compromise. The sacking of the Norman port of La Rochelle by English sailors caused Philip to summon the English king to his court. Edward sent ambassadors, like any king would, 
but Philip pointedly said that only kings sent ambassadors. Edward was a French duke, and so should pay homage personally. This was rather ridiculous, as this was an international incident, not an internal one, but Philip wanted to fight, and that is what he would get. Edward, though, was not in a mood for war, as he had enough problems bringing Wales and Scotland, and so sought to reach a compromise where he would marry Philip's sister Blanche and give up his lands in France as a sign of good faith, then receiving them back from the French king after a grace period. The French king agreed to this, but neglected to mention that Blanche was already betrothed. He attempted to offer Edward his younger sister Margaret, but then he refused to give Edward his lands back and signed a pact of mutual assistance with the Scots, with whom Edward was fighting, and so England and France were once again at war. The war went on for about five years and was a bit of a shambles all round. Edward struggled to raise enough men to fight both in France and Scotland, as well as garrison the Welsh castles, and Philip failed to take Gascony. Eventually, a peace deal in the Treaty of Montreuil was signed in 1299 and was sealed with the marriage of Edward to Philip's youngest sister, Margaret, and his son and heir, Edward, was betrothed to Philip's three-year-old daughter, Isabella. Upon her marriage, Margaret was about 17, which by the standards of the last few queens is positively ancient. As with most queens, she was considered a beauty. According to the chronicler Peter Langcroft, quote, Lady Margaret, in whose least finger there is more goodness and beauty, whoever looks at her, than the fair Iodine, who Adamas loved. A reference, I believe, to Greek myth. The age gap between the two, though, was quite something, as Edward was by now in his 60s. In many ways, this marriage can be compared to Henry I's second marriage to Adeliza of Louvain. Both were old kings marrying young princesses with the aim of shoring up the succession and, you know, for other reasons that old men might want to marry a pretty young lady. Edward did not have the imperative that Henry had with regard to having more children, as his son would survive, but it was certainly a factor in him deciding to marry. He already had lost far more children than any man should, more than ten in his lifetime, and so there was no reason to suggest that Edward would survive. Margaret landed at Dover in September 1299 and was taken to Canterbury, where she and Edward were married. She was very much presented as a peacemaker to an England that was getting a little tired with all the war that had been going on in recent years. In the Song of the Scottish Wars, the unnamed poet wrote, quote, Next the king returns, that he may marry Queen Margaret, the flower of the French. Through her, the kingdoms receive a more complete peace. Anger begets slaughter, concord nourishes love, when love buds between great princes, it drives away bitter souls from their subjects. Unusually, she was not crowned. It's not at all clear why this would be, but perhaps it was out of deference to the late Queen Eleanor. Another possible reason, though, is that Edward had to rush off quickly up to Scotland, accompanied by his wife. He may have been in his 60s, but Edward was still as active as he had been in his 20s, and so was gratified to find out that his new wife was no slouch. She enjoyed riding and hunting, and was more than willing to accompany her new husband on his expedition up north. She also very quickly fell pregnant. Apparently, while out riding in Yorkshire, her water broke, and she had to be rushed to the nearby village of Brotherton. Once again, Peter Lancroft writes, quote, Queen Margaret, by command of her lord the king, proceeds towards the north. She was advanced in pregnancy. By will of God Almighty at Brotherton on the wharf, she is safely delivered of a son, who is named Thomas at his baptism. King Edward, received information of it, prepares quickly to visit the lady, like a falcon before the wind. After her purification made solemnly, the king resumes his road towards Scotland. The queen, with her son, waits at Carwood on the River Ouse, much at her ease. This son was born on the 1st of June, 1300, meaning that he must have been conceived more or less on their wedding night, so this was really quick work by Margaret. 
Indeed, Elizabeth Norton, in her book England's Queens, speculates that Thomas must have been born premature given the speed of his birth from his parents' meeting and the fact that his place of birth had no royal residence. He was named after St Thomas Becket, as apparently she had prayed extensively to him during her labour. Throughout his life, he would be known as Thomas of Brotherton, in honour of the village of his birth. Margaret did not have as much bad luck with pregnancy that afflicted her predecessor, and went on to have two further children with Edward, another son called Edmund, and a daughter named Eleanor, though she died young. Despite, or perhaps, of his advancing years, Edward seems to have developed more of a paternal instinct with his two new sons, and we know a surprisingly large amount about their upbringing. They were attended by a staff of around 50 to 70, at a cost of around £1,300 per year. They were given a strict religious upbringing, with a personal chaplain, and were instructed to give money and clothes to the poor from a young age. We know that they learned to ride from almost when they learned to walk, and also learned how to play music, as this is one of their mother's great passions. How do we know all this? Well, by following the money. One of the great joys of English history compared to that of many other places in the Middle Ages is that, comparatively speaking, English administrators took incredibly detailed records, and this, coupled with far more centralised state that was the norm in contemporary Europe, meant that there are far better surviving documents to England than in many other countries. Margaret does seem to have had far more of a maternal instinct than Eleanor had, but, like her predecessor, she preferred to follow Edward around on his travels and wars than to stay with the kids, and so she was something of an absentee parent, not that that was unusual for the time. Despite the age gap between the two, there is evidence that there was again real affection between Edward and Margaret. He may have been a ferocious soldier in general, but with his wives, Edward appears to have been a right softy. He appears to have been completely faithful to his wife, just as he had been to his previous spouse, and there is considerable evidence of his affection for Margaret. He took a deep personal interest in her health, corresponding regularly with her physicians, and he helped her out with debts. The most notable sign of his concern, though, was over the death of Blanche, Duchess of Austria. Blanche was Margaret's older sister, and after her betrothal to Edward had fallen through, had married Rudolf I of Austria, but died in childbirth in 1305. Blanche and Margaret had been close, and so Edward was worried about the effect that the news might have on his wife, and so he advised her confessor, who had been appointed the unhappy task of breaking the news to her, to do so as gently as possible. Sadly, though, Edward, while sweet, was about as subtle as an axe, and so further advised him that, should she take the news badly, that she should be consoled with the fact that, that because Blanche had moved all the way to Austria, she was never going to see her again anyway, and so she had been pretty much as good as dead already. A man of words, he was not, but I happen to think that his heart was in the right place. There were two big differences between Margaret and her predecessor, Eleanor of Castile. In fact, I think it's fair to say that she had far more in common with Eleanor of Provence with regard to both of them. The first was about her spending. To quote the kinks, she was a dedicated follower of fashion, spending thousands of pounds on expensive fabrics, clothes and other items from the continent, to just £1,000 to Balliardi of Luca for fabric alone. Indeed, Edward had to keep enlarging the amount of money in terms of lands, wardships and other revenues that were allocated to her just to keep up the pace with her spending. While Eleanor of Castile had very much been a net gain for the English royal treasury, Margaret was a plug hole that wouldn't stop sucking out royal riches. Let's not forget that she was a young woman in an unfamiliar place, and this was her hobby of sorts. I just bet that Edward wished she had found a slightly less pricey one. Upon her death, despite the ardent attempts of her husband's estate, she would be heavily in debt. The poor woman just couldn't help herself. Edward, though, was very good at covering up his wife's financial woes. Though she was strongly criticised by the chronicler of St Albans, he managed to shield her from the worst criticism through some pretty astute and clever financial wizardry. Her other main break from the example of Eleanor of Castile was a far more positive one, queenly intercession. 
As we discussed last time, Eleanor of Castile managed an almost unique middle ground of being a queen of power and influence, but also one content to not attempt to get involved in high politics. Normally, queens of her standing and influence with the king would at the very least attempt to sway his mind on this or that policy, especially on moral matters, while many others, such as, for example, Eleanor of Aquitaine, sought to wield real power. This middle course of Eleanor of Castile's had been highly irregular, and Margaret did not attempt to follow her example. She instead followed a very... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traditional intercessionary model being seen as a peace broker between her increasingly bellicose and ruthless husband and his enemies. There are a few examples of this. When the city of Winchester allowed an important hostage to escape their city, Edward was prevented from taking brutal revenge by Margaret, who steadied his hand. He also saved a goldsmith named Godfrey de Cognes, who had the temerity to fashion a crown for Robert Bruce. Edward and Robert had been previously allies in the First Scottish War of Independence, but after murdering one of his chief rivals, Bruce claimed the throne for himself and ordered a crown be made, an order that was fulfilled by Godfrey. This was not the most sensible thing for Godfrey to have done, but Margaret managed to calm Edward down and prevented the goldsmith from being separated from his head. She was also a fantastic stepmother to young Edward of Carnarvon, Edward I's son and heir. Now, of course, we'll get into the whole sorry story of Edward's life and reign in later episodes, but I will briefly talk about him here as it is relevant to our story. Edward and Margaret were of very similar age at this time, and Edward, who had been without a mother since the age of six, seems to have very much taken to his stepmother. The relationship between father and son was not especially good. Edward I wanted a man of action for his son, a man like himself. But the prince was not that at all, as we will see in episodes to come. They don't seem really to have been on speaking terms, and so Prince Edward used his stepmother as a go-between, getting her to ask Edward for things for him, largely for small stuff like resolution of a legal matter or equipment for his staff. There were, though, two matters where she helped him out in bigger disputes with his father: the first concerning his foul mouth, and the other concerning a certain Piers Gaveston. It all started in 1305. Prince Edward managed to tick off the treasurer of the Exchequer, a man called Walter Langton. Now, if you're someone who has a different relationship with the king 
and was pretty terrible with money, you don't want to make an enemy of the king's chief financial officer and one of his closest advisers. We don't really know what he did, but it seems that he insulted him pretty badly, egged on by one of his friends. As a punishment, the king essentially cut him off. No more money, young man, until you learn your lesson. And he was banished from court. The prince expected this to be merely a slap on the wrist, and was frankly staggered to find that his father really did go through with his threat, siding with his minister over his son and heir. Destitute, he appealed to his sisters and stepmother for help, and Margaret came through for him. At a banquet held at the Palace of Westminster, Edward was reinstated to a position of prominence, though not quite up to the one where he would expect it to be. Edward also released a ban on the prince from borrowing from the moneylenders of London. The young prince had no doubts over whom it was that changed the king's mind. In a letter to his stepmother, he wrote, quote, Our lord the king has now allowed most of the yeomen of our chamber to dwell with us as they were wont, and well we know this was by your request, for which we are dearly grateful to you, as you know. This, though, was not the end of his troubles that required Margaret's help, as we now have to talk about Piers Gaveston. Now, I will be talking a lot more about this man in a later episode, as Edward's relationship with Gaveston is a key part of the story of the marriage of Edward II and Isabella of France, but I need to quickly introduce him here as he does figure in this story. Piers Gaveston was a young man from a minor, though wealthy, noble family in Gascony, who had impressed Edward I when he served with his campaigns in Wales. He seemed a paragon of martial virtue, something that the king felt was strongly lacking in his son. Therefore, Edward assigned Gaveston to the prince's household, hoping, no doubt, that he could learn from his example. The two certainly became close, but far, far too close to the king's liking. The accusations and claims about the supposed sexual relationship between Edward II and Piers Gaveston had spilt ink across the centuries, with historians and authors and playwrights from Christopher Marlowe to modern scholars via lurid historical fiction. The first thing to say is that if Edward did commit sexual acts with Piers, it was not a homosexual relationship in the manner that we might understand it today. For a start, if this were the case, then Edward was a bisexual, as he had many children, both legitimate and illegitimate, with multiple women. Secondly, the relationship that he had with other men can be more considered to be a brother-in-arms type relationship. It was not untypical in the medieval, and especially in the ancient world, for men who were companions in battle to develop very close bonds which could then develop into a sexual relationship. These relationships did not for the most part leave the group, and they would often go off and have relations with lots of women and have armies of illegitimate children, but those bonds with their brothers-in-arms would remain strong. Gaveston and Edward did not develop these bonds in thanks to military service, because, frankly, that was not something that Edward had much interest in, but they did nonetheless develop thanks to Edward's isolation at court. Gaveston was a tall, handsome man and a good soldier, and it's easy to see how the impressionable, beaten-down prince would have latched onto him. Sadly, however, Gaveston only brought out the worst in Edward, as, though he seemed on the outside a paragon of knightly virtue, he was also ambitious and petty. It is very possible that it was Gaveston who talked Edward into insulting Walter Langton, and the rumours surrounding the closeness of his relationship with the prince led the king to banish his son's probable lover from his household. Prince Edward was distraught. He really did rely on Gaveston as a bulwark against his father, as a vessel into which he could pour all his many, many daddy issues. After pleading with his father came to naught, Edward wrote to his stepmother, seeking her help in restoring Gaveston and also his cousin, Gilbert de Clare, to his household. Quote, Truly, my lady, if we should add those two to the others, we would feel much comfort and alleviation of the anguish we have endured and continue to suffer, 
by the ordinance of our aforementioned lord and father. My lady, will you please take this business to heart, and pursue it in the most gracious manner you may, so dearly as you love us? This was quite an opening of the heart by Edward, and he clearly trusted that his stepmother would not show this letter to his father, as it would not assuage many of the fears that he had regarding Edward and Gaveston. But, yet again, Margaret was successful, and had Gaveston and Declare restored to court. Indeed, Gaveston was knighted by the king, though this rapprochement would not last long, and the restored favourite of the prince would not end up being a great friend to the woman who had saved him from exile. On the 7th of July 1307, Edward I died while on the way to Scotland for yet another campaign. Margaret was not with him at the time, and the death was entirely unexpected. Despite her being still only in her late twenties, the now dowager queen never remarried, and is said to have been utterly distraught at the death of her elderly husband. Her youth, though, did mean that she was not disposed to retiring from public life just yet. Now, Margaret's actions in the next few years intersect very much with the early years on the throne of Isabella of France, who will be covered in a later episode, so I will not go into too much detail here for fear of repeating myself in the future. Margaret's position during the reign of her stepson Edward was one largely of opposition. She may have supported him in his disputes with his father, but perhaps this was because she felt a kinship with him due to their similar ages. She, more than anyone else, knew just what a temper the king had, even though he doted on her. Edward II's first move was to recall Gaveston and name him Earl of Cornwall. Now, this was dumb, dumb, dumb. Gaveston was a minor noble, so giving him one of the great titles of the land was always going to take off the nobility. It also alienated the Dowager Queen, as that earldom was destined for one of her sons, not some bosom pal of the king. Edward never recovered from this move, and his standing was permanently at rock bottom from here on out. It was not all doom and gloom, however, for Margaret, as she accompanied her stepson to France in 1308 for his marriage to Isabella of France. She had not seen her homeland for a long while, and was reunited with her brother and mother, which must have been a great comfort to her. Isabella was also Margaret's niece, and so she must have hoped that together they could exert sufficient influence on Edward to counter the machinations of Piers Gaveston. But, alas, no. After the coronation of Isabella, in which Edward and Gaveston managed to screw everything up, Margaret retired to her castle at Marlborough, but she was still keenly involved in court gossip and plots. Indeed, it is alleged in many chronicles that she and her brother King Philip of France conspired with a cabal of English nobles to bring down Gaveston, but to no avail. She was also angry at the treatment of her niece, who was granted no independent income, as the queenly dower lands were of course still in the hands of Margaret. The extent of the role that she played in the coming struggles between Edward and his nobility over the question of Gaveston is unclear, but though she did not play a hugely direct role, her opposition to Gaveston was well known. I will talk about all of this in a later episode, but spoiler alert, it eventually ends with Gaveston's abduction and summary execution by a group of disaffected nobles. Margaret's role in the aftermath of the execution was essentially to act as a go-between for King Philip and the English court, as Isabella's position was still not secure enough, and she was also too young to have a significant influence. What influence she had on her niece was not known, sadly, but they certainly were cut from the same cloth when it came to fashion and accessories, as well as sharing religious interests. Margaret's last court appearance was in 1312, at the birth of her step-grandson, Edward, the future Edward III. After this, it appears that ill health finally forced her into retirement, and on Valentine's Day 1318, Margaret of France died at Marlborough. Her death was not much noted in the sources, and she has joined the ranks of England's forgotten queens, 
overshadowed by her predecessor Eleanor of Castile, but especially by the reign of her niece Isabella. At her request, she was buried at Greyfriars in a far simpler burial than the one afforded to Eleanor of Castile. A forgotten queen she may have been, but this is perhaps unfair. A lack of sources and, frankly, of interest has obscured Margaret from historical sight, but what we have displays a woman of real talent and heart. It is rare for a young queen to achieve so much during the reign of a much older husband who had been on the throne for years and had only just lost his first wife. Just ask Adelaide of Louvain. She won't go down as one of England's great queens, but she did a surprising and impressive amount with what she had. Now for a public service announcement. By my calculations, we're about halfway through our story at this point. We've covered about 200 years of history and have about 200 to go. What with it almost being Christmas and New Year, now seems a perfect moment to do some of those supplementals that I keep talking about. Not all the interesting women in our period have become queens, and it seems wrong to just ignore or skirt past them all without giving them some extra attention. So, next time you hear from me, we won't be talking about Isabella of France. We will be instead going back 200 years to talk about one of my favourite women from medieval Europe, the indomitable Empress Matilda. I wish you all a very happy Christmas, and I'll see you all in the new year. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.